So this morning we're starting a new teaching series on the theme of emotions. Emotions. Let's talk about emotions. And I want to start, uh, I want you to put yourself in a car. It's Friday. It's a little after five. It's been a good week. Your heart's in a good place. You're looking forward to, to a good two days off, right? And on your way home from your nine-minute commute, right? If there's a traffic jam, it means it's a 13-minute commute. And on your way, on your way home, on your nine-minute commute, and you're just thanking the Lord that you don't live in a congested urban area where it's a 35-minute commute, but you're, it's, it's just going to be an easy ride home, and you're, it's going to be a good two days. Everything's good. And then in the midst of all of that goodness, suddenly a driver swerves in front of you and forcing you to slam on your brakes, and your tires squeal, and your car fishtails. And then the unbelievable happens. That driver who swerved in front of you, who caused all of this, waves at you with the tall finger. <laughs> you didn't think I was going to say that, did you? <laughs> yeah. And then speeds away. And you're going, like, what just happened? And you kind of wish then you did live in a congested area so that you could kind of process it all. But I mean, wait a minute, you're thinking, wait, wait a minute, that's, that was not my fault. That was your fault. That was your fault and, and not mine. And your, your fear then becomes fury. And your relief that there was no accident then becomes kind of like rage. And, and it's like, how dare you? And you're still fuming. And, and you, you, you're just thinking about it. And you just can't believe it. You, they would violate your kingdom. And I can't believe that. And you pull into your driveway and you go through the front door like you always do. And the family dog Rover wags his tail and jumps on you and puts his paws all over you and licks your finger and gets his hair all over your dry, clean clothes. And you'll say, get off of me. And your family is like, who are you? And what have you done with my, you know, mom or dad? What, what's going on here? And, and I mean, Rover slinks away and he, he doesn't do anything different than what he always does. He always jumps at you when you walk through the door. And you actually kind of like it, even though you're a little irritated by it. But, but not today. And you know why, don't you? Because road rage followed you home. Hmm. Rover didn't cut you off. Right? Or wave his paw at you. <laughs> right? But your mind and your body are in this emotional tango. And, and your body is still angry. And your heart rate is up and you feel hot and flushed and your adrenaline is pulsing through the veins. You're ready for a fight. And the person you want to fight is sped up. You don't even know who that is. And, and you're, you're, so your anger is not just reacting to that anonymous driver, but to everything in the zone. And now let's add something else to the mix. Let's say you're the pastor of a church. Yeah. And now it gets complicated, doesn't it? 
What if people at church saw you like this? What would they think? Right? What would they say about how you just responded to Rover? One of God's creations. Huh? Yeah. And then you, are, you know what the next question is going to be. Right? Right? It's on your bracelet. What would Jesus do? Let me Jesus do. Am I not allowed to have a bad day? Am I not allowed to get cut off in traffic? Am I? I mean, you know, and so now defensiveness faces off with guilt. And there's this courtroom that convenes with the prosecution of you should and the defense of am I not allowed? And, you know, and listen, none of that entered your mind when you drove off the parking lot. What just happened? Life just happened. That's what happened. Life in a sinful, broken, fallen world, and your emotions are in play. And no, you didn't deserve to be cut off and, or, or, or flipped off. And yes, you brought it home with you. And yes, you are a pastor. And no, you really don't own a dog named Rover. It's just part of the illustration. And yes, yes, a, a very similar true situation has occurred. And, and, and yes, what is happening to you affects your feelings and your feelings affect your body and your brain is part of your body shaping how you think and how you think is how you feel and and about an hour later you, you know you calm down and your pulse is now lower and you're able to recalibrate your heart from this from this sticky gooey tangled story And there's a thousand of those stories today between our two services. You know that, don't you? There's a thousand of those stories. And we've brought all of these emotionally saturated stories into this space right here. I mean, it's really a miracle that we've made it, isn't it? <laughs> really. How many different feelings have you felt so far today? Right? Uh, glad? Sad? Mad? Afraid? Anxious? I'd be willing to bet that they're all here in this room. I'd be willing to bet that. So how are we to make sense of our emotions? How, how does God want us to think about how we feel? Well, I'm curious about that. And so I'd like to explore that question, how God wants us to think about how we feel. And, and uh, here's, here's the series' big idea. It's the big idea for today. It's the big idea for our series, and it's this. I would like to propose that emotions are a gift from God bestowed upon us to move us to Christ. There, emotion, emote, 
from the Latin, movere, move, move, and movere, to move out. So the emotional life is a gift from God to move us to Christ. The emotional life is a gift from God to move us to Christ. And, and my assumption is this, your emotional life and your spiritual life are inseparable. I'm thinking of uh, Peter Scazzaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. That book is referenced in a series of books at the bottom of your outline sheet that I would recommend. Um, the Emotionally Healthy Church, page 66, Peter Scazzaro. He says, you cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. You cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And you know why, don't you? Because, you know, we're whole people. Body, soul, spirit, mind, emotions, intellectual, social, physical, spiritual. And it's, it's, not, it's not even good to think of it as a pie with different slices because I think it's just a lot messier than that. Just kind of all globbed together. And our world has kind of a two-tiered view of personhood, right? Where on the first floor, our, our world says facts. And then the second floor is faith. Facts on the first floor, faith on the second floor. And that is a worldly construction of personhood that does not synchronize with Scripture, Scripture says that we are whole, body, soul, spirit, mind, emotions. It all comes together and affects one another as a whole. Paul said to Timothy, I want you to watch your life and your doctrine closely. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, I remember my schooling, my education, really emphasized more of watch your doctrine. Because I took Greek and I took Hebrew, those biblical languages and church history and, uh, you know, how to understand portions of the Bible, interpretation and how to watch your doctrine. But I didn't really, or maybe I just skipped it that day they taught it in seminary, the how to watch your life, how to really be self-aware of your life. And I don't, I just don't. And I don't know how you get all of that into a 22-year-old anyway, if you could. I just, you know. It's really, a, it's really a lifelong process of becoming self-aware, of, of, of knowing yourself. And, and it becomes a character issue. So this past weekend, I just had a wonderful marriage conference with Crawford and Karen Loritz. And... Um, it was just a delight to be with them Friday evening and Saturday morning. And, but at noon on Friday, they met with our staff just for some mentoring, just sage mentoring. And here's something that Crawford said. He, he made this observation. He said, often leaders are appointed because of what they, quote, bring to the table. Skills, experience, eloquence, forcefulness, determination, vision, charisma, ability to get results. Then Crawford said this, but what about their walk with God? 
What about their family life? What about their interior life? What about their character? You see, those are questions about emotional maturity. Consider these statements on emotional maturity. Do a little self-audit as I'm reading these statements. I can listen with empathy without demanding, manipulating, or rebelling. I can sustain emotional intensity with you without assuming that it has to be about me. I can respect and love others without having to change them. I can receive criticism without defensiveness. When I am under stress, I do not fall into a victim mentality or a blame game. I am deeply convinced that I am absolutely loved by Christ and that I have nothing to prove. What would your life look like if those traits were active in such a way that, that you, in humility, knew that they were there and, but that others saw that and, and honored God for that? What would your family look like? What would our congregation look like? And what if, what would our community look like if a congregation, these are traits that display emotional health. What would our community look like if a congregation of a thousand made their way into the community sharing these traits, influencing these traits? These traits are nothing less than the work of Christ's Spirit in and through our lives. I'm thinking of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. They're more than just religious words. They're emotional, spiritual. Because you cannot separate emotional and spiritual maturity. The emotional life is a gift from God to move us to Christ. Now, what I want to do this morning is just answer three introductory questions about emotions in the Bible. It's a what, why, and how. What are emotions? Let's, let's get a biblical definition. And we're going to have to infer that definition because I haven't been able to find a verse that says, thus saith the Lord, emotions are. So we're going to have to look at a passage of Scripture and then infer from that emotions. And we can do that. Uh, we can do that with integrity. We can do that. And I'll show you here in just a minute. What are they? Why did God give us emotions anyway? What's that about? And then how? How do we process our emotions? What, why, and how? Take your New Testaments, if you would. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. You'll find that on page 981 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please, I would love it if you could take a copy, put your name in it, and receive it as a gift from this church family. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. And these are verses written by the Apostle Paul to a congregation. So imagine you being the congregation hearing these words read to you from a letter written by the Apostle Paul. 
Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. So it's his brother in Christ and worker in the gospel. And the word soldier, he's not like in the military. It's a figure that says he's in the fight for Christ. That's what that means. And your messenger and minister to my need. So he's originally from Philippi is what we're learning here. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Now, did you notice how emotionally intensive these words are? Do you see the emotion intensive words in these verses? Longing, distressed, Mercy, that there's an emotion in that word. Sorrow, eager, rejoice, less anxious, joy, honor. There's an emotion in that word. These verses are brimming with feeling. What's going on here? Well, here's, here's the brief background. Paul planted this Christian church in the ancient city of Philippi, which was the first Christian church in Europe. He loves these believers. If you read the whole letter to the Philippians, it's like a garden of just of love from the apostle and, and these brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, so Paul is imprisoned for the gospel. And when the Philippians found out that their beloved Paul was imprisoned for Christ, they wanted to help support Paul and his living expenses, because back then, if you didn't have a sort of a financial support net while in prison, you weren't going to make it. So they love Paul, and so they want to help. And so they send a substantial financial gift with Epaphroditus to support Paul, not just with money, but with love and just whatever Paul needs. While there, Epaphroditus became sick to the point where he almost died. And when the Philippians found out about that, they began to worry. Now remember, there was no email back then, no cell phone. It was just horseback, if that. And so the Philippians are anxious, and they're waiting to hear. But then, so then, you know, Epaphroditus becomes anxious because the Philippians are anxious about him and he doesn't want them to stress over his condition. And Paul is worried that Epaphroditus might not make it out alive. And, and you know, they, there's just this concern that's going on. This is this emotion-rich passage here. And my question is this, what's driving these emotions? What's fueling these emotions? And the answer is love. Love. 
Paul and Epaphroditus and the Philippians, they, they, they have received so much from Christ's love. Now they share it with one another and it shows up in how they feel. It shows up in their emotions. So what are emotions? Emotions are the overflow of our love. Emotions are the overflow of our love. Emotions express our love. Emotions express our care. Emotions reveal our values. They communicate our concerns. And ultimately, they make known who or what we worship first and most. And when your heart is grounded in God and when knowing God and being known by God matters most, then your emotions will overflow and they will surface as effortlessly as a, it's just a kind of an inflated beach ball and you just can't keep it down. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make its way up to the surface. And what you love shapes how you feel. In John chapter 11, we're going to see this in detail next week. One of Jesus' closest friends dies. Lazarus. And those of you who know John 11, you know what happens. Jesus miraculously raises Lazarus from death. But it's in this chapter that we discover the, the shortest verse in the Bible. You know what it is? What is it? Jesus wept. That's right. Jesus wept. But why? Because that's what love does when it faces loss. Jesus does not refuse to share the pain of those he loves. Not even when he knows their sorrow is about to turn to astonished joy. And the Bible teaches over and over again that sadness and dismay and, and anger and fear... You know, have a good and rightful place. Some of us are deeply uncomfortable with negative feelings and assume something is wrong with us whenever we do feel sad or mad or bad. And surely we think, well, if I just had more faith or a better perspective or more strength of character, then we wouldn't feel this way or at least we'd you know, get over it faster. And the Bible takes a radically different view. Unlike our assumption that the most faithful people will be the most carefree and emotionally upbeat, Scripture is full of aching, grieving saints who tear their clothes and sit in the ashes of their chaotic, upended world. The Bible's logic is simple. If you care about others and you care about the kingdom of God and the mission of God in this world, you will be and you should be full of sorrow when you lose those you love or when those you love hurt or suffer. And we ought to feel disturbed in the presence of injustice. And our pulse should race when our family's in danger. And as, in, as counterintuitive as it seems, awful feelings like grief can actually be the right feelings to have, feelings that honor God, and it would be wrong not to feel that way. Listen to something C.S. Lewis, who gave us the Chronicles of Narnia, 
Listen to this quote from him. He once said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of selfishness. But in that casket safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will change in that it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. What are emotions? They're evidence of love. Evidence of love. Well, why did God give us those emotions? That's question number two. God gave us emotions. We're emotional because God's emotional. And emotions are evidence of possessing the image of God in our hearts and lives. Write down these verses that are up on your screen. And while you're writing them down, let me read them. Because these, these are emotions that our Heavenly Father feels like joy. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exalt over you with loud singing. There's grief. Psalm 78, 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness. Remember our study through the Exodus? Huh? And grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Then there's compassion. Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And let's not forget indignation. Psalm 7, 11 and 12, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. David wrote Psalm 7, and when he wrote Psalm 7, evildoers were usurping God's ways. And David was saying, God, do something. Verse 12 says, if man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. And then, of course, there's love. Jeremiah 31.3, I've, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. The, the point of God's joy and grief and compassion and indignation and love is that God is not an unmoved being. He is a dynamic, personal being with perfect knowledge, perfect will, perfect emotions. He loves, he hates, he rejoices, he is pleased, he's displeased, he's grieved, he's angered, he has compassion, love, and pleasure. He interacts with and responds to his people. He is sovereign. He has perfect emotions that reflect his values and evaluations and, and, and how he feels affects his conduct. How he feels affects his conduct. 
God is not moody, but he is emotional. And we, we've been made in his image. And so there is a way in which our emotions mirror the emotions of God. And so, so for example, do you remember when your beloved child acted unwisely, disobediently, and dangerously? And how did you feel? Didn't you find yourself simultaneously loving your child and being furious with your child? Why? Because you're made in God's image, that's why. So, you know, to, to say that God loves the sinner and hates the sin, well, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. That, that just may be a little too compartmentalized. Uh, to, maybe, to maybe be more precise, it's this. God loves the sinner and gets furious with the sinner when the sinner sins. Uh, Christians often see negative emotions negatively. You know, anxiety is proof that you don't trust God, or grief is failure to rest in God's good purposes for your life. In other words, we, we intend to interpret dark feelings as spiritual failure. So now, in addition to having the dark feeling, we feel shame about having the dark feeling. And it just kind of piles on. And so, you know, as a result, we think that we need to repent of negative emotions instead of exploring them and getting curious about them. And I'm not even so sure that we know what to do with positive emotions. Right? We, so, you know, we minimize happiness for fear of, you know, loving God's gifts more than God and or, you know, satisfaction over a job well done. Well, you we don't want to get, we don't want to feel too glad about that because that could be pride and, you know, so just kind of keep it down. If you feel good for too long, well, you're just selfish and oblivious to the needs of everyone around you. We just can't seem to get it right no matter how we feel. But, you know, the most problematic emotions are never the true problem. They're not. The, the true problem is the collection of warped loves of our hearts and the shattering of God's good creation. And so instead of fighting dark feelings simply because, you know, we feel bad, we need to make room in our faith for sadness and fear and anger and guilt and shame and dismay and the like. And, it, you know, without them, our faith kind of becomes lopsided. It's like a car with wheels on only one side, grinding and scraping along, veering constantly off the road that God's Word would keep us on. So feel more. Because emotions are evidence of the image of God. Emotions are evidence of what we love. Emotions are evidence of the image of God, the what and the why. And now the how. How do we process the emotions that we feel? How do we process the emotions that we feel? And I want to call your attention to four words on this point. 
And they come from one of the books that I have in the reference list there uh, by um, Alistair Groves, I believe, Untangling Emotions. I quoted uh, Peter Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Church. All, all of these books that I um, have have been very helpful to me. The ones that are near the bottom of the list are, I guess, a little more uh, technical, uh, at least to me, and uh, I'd recommend all of them. But if you could just have one, I would recommend the one by Alistair Groves, and it's called Untangling Emotions. And uh, so these four words come from that book, and, and so I commend that book to you. It's been of great help to me in the study. Identify, examine, evaluate, and act. That's how we process our emotions. Identify. See, this is part of the implication of watching your life closely. Pay attention to God in your heart, in your life. What's, what, you know, it's not just about what work I'm doing for God, but it's about what work does God want to do in and through my heart and my life. God is just as concerned about his servant than the service he wants his servant to do. And so identify. What, so, okay, what am I feeling right now? What's, what is my emotional state right now? Where, where am I right now emotionally? Okay. Sometimes that's not too difficult to figure out. So, you know, let's say that you slam your finger in the car door. You don't need to go, hmm, how do I feel about that? You don't need to do that. I know how that feels. Ah! Yeah. But what am I feeling right now? So emotions involve our bodies. And we feel our emotions. Where do, where do emotions take place? In your body. That's where they take place. Now, not just in your head. Your whole body. And, and sometimes there's a delay or a gap between what you see and understand and when you begin to feel that particular emotion in your body. And sometimes we refuse to let our bodies feel emotion until after something has happened. And sometimes when we are feeling especially sensitive, you know, we feel emotions instantly before we've had time to evaluate the situation and think about what's really happening. So, you know, identify and then examine. What is this saying about what I love? That's what we talked about earlier. What love is being revealed in this emotion? What's this saying about what I love? And then thirdly, and I think this verb is probably the hardest part, which part of this emotion is godly and which part isn't? Uh, I've read in some material that, you know, the notion that, well, emotions aren't good or bad, they just are. I'm not so sure about that. So if you feel joy over someone else's demise, that's not good. Right? So you, you, you know, you, you, can't really, you can't really make that absolute. That's just, so you, you, we need to evaluate. Which, which, so which part of this emotion is godly and which part isn't? And could it be both? Maybe, probably, you know. Identify, examine, evaluate, and, 
And the fourth verb is, is, is act. Act. And this is really important because I don't want us to walk away thinking that, okay, once I have figured out everything there is to figure out about myself and my heart and I've been really introspective, and then until I do that, I don't even, I haven't figured out my heart yet. It's pretty complicated. It's deceitful too. So, so identify, examine, evaluate, and then, and then act. And, and this doesn't mean, this is interesting. This was an interesting learning for me. This does not mean striving to change the emotion itself. So, so changing your feeling is not the biggest goal. Rather, let the evaluation of our emotions move us to act in ways that will impact our deep loves and treasures and in our hearts. So let's take the emotion anxiety. Anxiety. And let's think about a Bible verse that speaks to anxiety. All right, let's look at this verse, 1 Peter 5, 7. Let's read it together on three, one, two, three. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Again, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast, cast, that's the action, cast. It's a great verb, shows up twice in the New Testament. Here and the other time, that it shows up is when the disciples took a blanket and cast that blanket on the back of a donkey that Jesus rode on Palm Sunday. So are you anxious? Are you worried? Saddle it up on Christ. Saddle it up on Christ. So I had an experience that I never had before um, on Memorial Day, uh, I, I had some continuing education. And the way the schedule worked out, um, I had class a little bit on the weekend and then, then following the following Tuesday. But Memorial Day, no class. So I'm, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. What am I going to do on Memorial Day? I've never been to Churchill Downs. I think I'll go to Churchill Downs. Because uh, it was Memorial Day, there was some horse racing going on, and, and so I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. The Kentucky Derby is run there, and at the Derby, I mean, like the seats are 20, or 25000 a table, $5,000 a seat, okay? On Memorial Day, 12 bucks. all right? <laughs> yeah, so, so I went, and uh, uh, I'd ne I just have never had that experience before, so I go, and no, I didn't put any money down. Right, just don't need that asks. So just so you know, whatever. But um, so so, but man, I saw this beautiful thoroughbred. I mean, I mean, I've seen them on TV, and I saw Seabiscuit and all that. But I've not seen a thoroughbred. I mean, up close, and they are just this beautiful machine, lean, fast. Oh my goodness! And the and the race was exciting. The first race there was this one horse and he was like in fourth place the whole race and then like at the last length I mean it's like he found another gear and boom 
right up to first place. And the horse that was in first place tuckered out and ended up back in fourth. And man, it was really, really interesting. And I, I've never seen that before. That horse was 12 to 1 odds, too. And so anyway, so um, <laughs> I saw four or five of those races. And can you imagine, can you imagine how funny it would have looked if when the gates popped open in one of the races, out came not the horses, but the jockeys carrying a saddle. And the race is around the track for a mile. And so they take their saddle and they're running as fast as they can in their nice little uniforms all the way around the track can you imagine how? Do you imagine what that would look like? Carrying their own saddles for one mile around the track. Who would stay to watch that? They, people don't come to watch the jockeys, even though they are dapperly dressed, right? No, no, no. No, they stay to watch those horses because they're good and they're fast. Listen to me. You've got your feelings and you've got your emotions, and you've got your worries, and you've got your anxieties, and your praises, and your prayers. Hey, I love you, but nobody cares to watch you haul your anxieties around the track. That's not what they're going to show up for, okay? They're not. I love you, but that's not what they're going to. What God wants you to do is say, give your anxieties to me. Pay attention to me. Focus on me. Saddle up and, in fact, hop on that anxiety and keep your heels down and let's go for a ride. Hang on. Now, people want to see that. And I want to tell you, church family, I saw that between services here because I prayed a line of prayers from brothers and sisters in our church family who are struggling with some deep, hard, anxious issues. But we're taking those and we're just keep piling it on Christ, piling it on, piling it on. And I'm telling you, it is a holy moment when we put those anxieties on him and then get on top of those and hold on to the reins and watch King Jesus fly. Amen. Here's one verse and then we'll close. Let's see it up here. I have set the Lord continually before me. You, you want to know? You want to know what the Bible has to say about emotional health and how we get to that space? I've set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will dwell securely. Amen.